Hey, Pastor Sean here. Thank you so much for checking out our sermons online. I want to let you know whether this is your first time watching one of our sermons or you're just reviewing a sermon that you've heard here on the campus. I will welcome you, but I do want to let you know we have a core value at Coastal Community Church, and that core value is that you find a local church to be a part of. And so uh, if this, hopefully this sermon series or this sermon is supplementing your spiritual growth, but I want to encourage you to find a, a local church. If you live in the Yorktown, Virginia area, we would love for you to visit us. We have three services, uh, 8 o'clock, 9, 30, and 11, and we meet at 101 Village Avenue. Thank you so much for checking out this sermon online. I hope it encourages your walk and your journey with Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. If you have your Bible, Romans chapter 1, that's where we're going to jump in this morning. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's probably Um, one in a chair in front of you. If you don't own a Bible and uh, you promise to take that one with you and read it from time to time, uh, preferably every day, okay, that's our gift to you because we'd love for you to have a copy of the Word of God and and read it on a regular basis. Um, I want to start with a question this morning. When I say the word peace, what comes to your mind? When I say peace, what what does that look like for you? What in your life would you change in order to have peace? You know, we're coming up on the the Christmas season. One of of my favorite lines of the birth of Christ is in Luke chapter 2 when the angels show up to the shepherds and and they make a declaration of the coming Messiah, and in that declaration they say, They say, peace on earth, and what? Some of you know, goodwill towards men, right? It's part of the coming of the Messiah. It's part of the gospel message is that that there's there's peace. But my question is, what does it mean to you? I remember when all my kids were running around like little ankle biters, right? And some of you all know about that. You're in the middle of that. And I remember when the word peace came to my mind. I was like, man, when they're all finally in bed, and, and you had that hour before you could no longer hold your eyelids open, right? It was just an hour in your home of, of peace where you could do kind of whatever you wanted. You could watch TV or read or, you know, or whatever. And like, man, that, that was peaceful. Maybe, maybe it's your house. It's, it's maybe, maybe peace would come when all the kids finally made it home, right? That's kind of, I'm on the other edge right now where they're teenagers, they're out driving, and you're like, man, when they finally get home, they'll, they'll, I'll rest easier, they'll, they'll be peace. Maybe, maybe it's that moment, those few moments when you and your spouse finally don't argue. There'd just be one evening in your home where nobody was arguing. Maybe that would bring peace to you. Maybe that's where you are. Maybe... Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're single and you're like, you know what, I would love for the holidays to come and, and I just have somebody that cares about me. You know, I'd be dating or I'd be engaged or I even have a spouse. Like that, that would bring peace to me. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're like, man, if I, could, if I could just offload some debt, you know, I've acquired this debt and the debt is getting in the way of my dreams, my financial dreams. And, and man, if I could just offload the debt, man, that, that, would, that would bring peace. Maybe you're here this morning and, and there's a burden of guilt, of shame in your life because of a sin in the past or a sin that you currently struggle with and you've never talked to anyone about it. The abortion you had or the addiction that you 
struggle with or the affair that no one knows about or the same-sex attraction or the gender confusion that you struggle with. And nobody knows these things. And if you could just tell one person and they could journey with you, that, that might bring peace. And so at the heart of the Christmas story, which is where we're heading, I know it's a little early for Christmas, but you know, there's the declaration of peace on earth and, and goodwill towards men. Yet so many of us, we, we go through this life with what seems like so little peace in our hearts and in our minds. And so this series we're going to do over the next month is the idea of a declaration of peace. We, we've entitled the series A Harvest of Peace because that's what we want you to know. But really, if you, if you dig down into the word peace, the implication is what? The implication is that we're at war. <laughs> and if we're at war, then we need peace, right? And so this morning, we, we've got to go to the very beginnings of really what, what is the war and, and then how do we find peace to overcome the battle. Well, the war is started because of sin. Sin is a rebellion against our creator and his character. And I want you to hear this. Every single sin creates a vacuum of injustice that demands to be filled. Every single sin creates a vacuum of injustice that demands to be filled. And so to get to peace, I mean, we've got to understand the origin of the war and find the solution in order to bring peace. And so we're going to start in Romans chapter 1, and we're going to answer the question, I mean, how bad is it really? How, how bad is the war? Now, I'm going to take you this morning through the entire book of Romans. That shouldn't take too long, okay? Um, how many of you are nervous? <clears throat> I would encourage you, all kidding aside, and I am going to take us through quickly, but it, all kidding aside, if, if you really want to kind of unpack this idea of peace, the book of Romans is a great place to start. It's a very theological book where Paul lays out the, the, the war of sin and how God reconciled us to himself and, and then the overflow of that reconciliation with our God. But I want you to I want you to unpack in your mind what I've already kind of laid out, right? So here's the idea, right? So, so if we're, Romans is going to let us know right from the beginning, Romans 1, that we're born into sin. And since we are born into sin, that means every one of us is a sinner. And therefore, we go through life either creating injustices when we sin against someone else or receiving injustices when people sin against us. So we all go through life with this heart, with vast vacuums of injustice that demand to be filled, yes? Right? I hope you know what I mean. Like, man, I've been sinned against, and man, I'm so angry, I'm struggling with this. Or the, the blind spot for most of us is that we sin against others, and therefore we're creating injustices in the hearts of others as we go. And the problem is our sin leaves us in a place that we're suppressing the truth of God. Naturally, you and I are truth suppressors. We don't want the truth. Romans 1, verse 18, so the Apostle Paul in all of Romans 1, really, he, he, in, in understanding the gospel, he, he begins by unpacking how, man, we are born into sin, and this causes tremendous problems for us. The, the problem, how bad is it? It's bad. Romans 1, 8, it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In our natural human state, because of our sin and rebellion to God, we don't want the truth. Our minds naturally push against the truth. According to the scriptures, we hate the truth. And because God is truth and God is light, here's the ultimate war. We're at war with our creator. We are enemies with God because we hate the truth. In fact, the Bible, if you're here this morning, you're not yet a believer. You're not a follower of Jesus Christ. You may sit here thinking, well, I'm neutral towards God. No, you're actually an enemy of God you, because you, he is truth and he is light. And in our natural state, you don't want the truth and you don't want the light. Right? We all know John 3, 16, right? That God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, and whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Man, we love that, and I love that, and that is true, right? And then uh, John reminds, as this, he unpacks Jan, uh, John chapter 3, that Jesus' first visit was not for judgment, okay? But judgment is coming, and then John chapter 3, verse 19, as we continue to go down, John says this, actually Christ says this, he says, and this is the judgment, all right? What is the, how is mankind going to be judged? John chapter three, verse 19. The light has come into the world and the people loved, what do people love, church? Darkness. We love the, let's do that again. Okay, I know you're still awake. You should not, you should not be tired this morning. You got an extra hour of sleep, all right? People love the what, church? They love the darkness. What? Rather than the light because their works were evil. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. Uh, in our natural selves, we are in rebellion to God. The Bible's very clear, right? The, that God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. And we hate the light because it exposes our sin in our natural state. And we don't want our sin exposed. We hate the truth. We love our sin. That's where we start in this war against God. And in fact, apart from the, the gracious act of God converting us, we're, we're at war with him, we hate his truth, we hate the light, and we are without excuse before God, Romans 1. Romans 1 tells us that creation clearly reveals a creator. Romans 1 tells us there's no such thing as an atheist. Now, an atheist, you may meet people who give verbiage to being an atheist, okay? But the reason, according to Romans 1, that they claim to be an atheist is why? Because they've suppressed the truth. And Romans 1 tells us man, that creation screams at us that there's a creator, right? Romans 1.19, for what can be known about God is what? It's plain to them. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have clearly perceived, ever, can be clearly perceived ever since creation of the world and the things that, we, that, he, that have been made so they are without excuse. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying every human being knows there's a God but we suppress the truth and, because we should be able to look at creation and go, man, God, creation reveals there's a God. And what does it reveal about God? Number one, he's powerful. He's incredibly powerful. I, man, I, I, science done well, all it does for me is wow me about the created order. The more I see science, the more I'm like, man, what an amazing God we have. And I love that 
the pictures from the Hubble telescope, and they send back this incredible expanding universe. And I'm just like, wow, what an incredible God we serve. And he's supposed to reveal to us we have a God that's extremely powerful. He's all-powerful, yet we suppress that truth. The second thing Paul says is, is creation reveals God's divine nature. There's a supernatural element to created order. And the supernatural element really is you being alive. And I've done sermons on this where I've given all kinds of statistics on how absurd it is to, to believe that life on earth is a random set of accidents. The statistical probability is, is beyond ridiculous. In my opinion, I'm like, if that's what you believe, you have way more faith than I do. I had one scientist said this. He said, the, the statistical probability of, of life on earth happening, all the things that would have to to line up for that to happen would be like taking an explosive into, into a, a junkyard, throwing a large explosive into a junkyard, and out of that explosion comes a fully functional 747 aircraft, right? It's just, it's beyond absurd. That's how, that's how, um, how intricate created order is. And it's supposed to reveal to us, man, God's divine nature and that you are alive and you're able to think and you're able to reason, you're able to contemplate that you have an innate sense of morality and justice, all of this should reveal to us the supernatural. Where did your sense of morality come from? How do you even know that when, when somebody sins against you and there's an injustice in your heart, how do you even know that belongs there? It belongs there because it's been put there by a supernatural God who is moral and we know it in our hearts. And so Paul builds the case, man, everybody is without excuse. We should be able to look at the created order and go, man, this God that we worship, he's amazing. And so we're at war with God. How bad is it? We're at war with God. And so Romans 1, Paul continues to unpack this idea that God then looks at sinful human beings and he turns them over to their sinful nature and their desires and their brokenness. And so because of this, because we've been turned over to our sin, apart from God's gracious breaking in and saving us or redeeming us or reconciling us, this injustice, there's injustice and brokenness in every single relationship that we have. Every relationship we have has brokenness to it, has an injustice to it. The ultimate injustice is, is our sin against our creator, against God. I'm going to skip, so I'm going to go to the end of Romans 1 and come back to the middle, okay? I'm going to do it in reverse order, but Romans 1.32, Paul writes, They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them. So in other words, we have this innate sense that we're rebelling against our Creator And we know that there's a penalty for that rebellion. And instead of repenting and turning to our creator and asking for forgiveness, what we do in our natural state is we rebel against God and we try to get others to go with us. Some of you in this room, somebody in this room right now, 
here this morning, you need to hear this. You're surrounding yourself with people that are pulling you into rebellion against your creator. You come here on Sunday morning, you know, man, you hear the truth. Your heart warms towards the truth because you know the truth. The truth will set you free, right? But then you, during the week, you're hanging out with these people who are like, man, let's continue in our rebellion against our creator. And they're pulling you away and good company can be corrupted by good morals. Some of you need to change your peer group. Because they're just fulfilling Romans 1.32 that not only are we in rebellion against God, not only do we know we deserve the wrath of God, but man, we will drag others with us left to ourselves. And you're being surrounded by people who are dragging you away from the creator. And so we're in rebellion to God and we hate the truth. And this is an ultimate injustice against our creator and it deserves punishment. And according to the scriptures, the punishment that it deserves is death. And this injustice against God then touches the overflow of our injustice against our creator, our sin against our creator, then touches every other relationship we have. It's the overflow of being out of right relationship with our creator. When we're out of right relationship with our creator, there's an injustice against him. It then flows and touches every other relationship we have. So now I want to go back, because Paul, in verse 28, Paul says, here's all the earthly relationships. So uh, because of the injustice with God, we can't get along with each other. Romans 1.28, Paul continues. He says, since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking. And he let them do the things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness and sin and and greed, and hate, and envy, and murder, and quarreling, and deception, and malicious behavior, and gossip. They're backstabbers. They're haters of God. They're insolent, and they're proud, and they're boastful, and they invent new ways of sinning. I love this last one here, this, like in that whole list, and they disobey their parents. Are my kids here yet? Anyway, anyway, so let's. And they refuse to understand. They break their promises. And they're heartless. And they have no mercy. And that's our natural response to one another because of our broken relationship with our Creator. Our natural response is then to just do evil and to to be uncaring and to be unmerciful and to be gossips and to backstab and to disobey the authorities that God has rightly placed over us. And every injustice that you have ever suffered or that you have ever given is a result of your sin against God that then overflows and touches every relationship that you have. So let me go back to point one, the question I ask. How bad is it? How bad is the human condition? It's catastrophic. It's catastrophic. And so how on earth can we expect to have peace on earth? How can we, how can we have a harvest of peace? How can we gather with our relatives this weekend or in a couple weeks that, you know, They've heard us because we've lived under the same roof. And maybe, maybe you're here this morning and there's these injustices around your family that have hurt your heart and, and there's a piece of you, man. You're dreading the holidays because it's getting together with people that have hurt you and you're, you're trying to figure out, man, how do I even process this? And it all begins 
when we have peace with our Creator, okay? So if you have your Bible, flip over to Romans 5, verse 1. Paul spends three chapters, essentially, in Romans 1, 2, and 3, talking about how catastrophic the human condition is and that we can kind of try to stand before our Creator in our own thinking, in our own right standing, and he tears each of these down. And then in, in Romans chapter 4, he talks about how we are saved by grace through faith and how Abraham was a model for us. And then in Romans 5 verse 1, Paul says that we have peace with God and this peace has been freely given to us. And so Paul writes in Romans 5 verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, guess what? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is the message, in a nutshell, this is the message of the gospel. Now let me start with one word here, okay? The first word I want to start with is the word justified, What does it mean to be justified? To be justified means that you have been declared righteous by grace through faith. It's a legal term that means there's a declaration of righteousness around your life or in your spiritual bank account, if you will, that's been given to you by grace through faith. In other words, your sin has left a vacuum of injustice with God. Romans 1 is painting the picture. What you really deserve is the wrath of God. You don't deserve the grace of God, but God in his grace took the initiative and completes the work of bringing peace to our broken relationship with him. The Bible word for this is reconciled. You have been reconciled. You are now in right relationship by grace through faith because the righteousness of Jesus Christ, his good works, if you will, here on earth, have been granted to you by grace through faith. And so one of the things that that I talk about frequently uh, at Coastal is the person and the work of Jesus. The person and the work of Jesus saves us from the wrath that we justly deserve because of our rebellion against our creator. And this, this person and this work of Jesus, is, it doesn't just save us from the injustice, but it's also in our broken relationships with one another, we can look at the gospel message, we can look at the life of Christ, and we, as we as believers grow to be more like Christ, we can apply that to the broken relationships around us. So let me, let me unpack this for a minute. What's the person of Jesus? Well, Jesus is the son of God. He, he's God in flesh, right? I mean, I, one of the things I love about the Christmas season, it's always shocking to me, is when I walk through stores in our culture that is so in rebellion to Christ, or I'll, I'll turn on the country Christmas special on TV, and they begin to sing these Christmas songs that resound with spiritual truth. And I'm like, you all, you know, 300 plus days out of the year are in rebellion to Jesus. We can't even say his name on TV, but then all of a sudden you're singing about Emmanuel. Do you know what you're singing? It is God with us. Jesus wrapped himself in flesh. Listen, and so how does this apply to our broken relationships? How does this apply to peace on earth? Well, if you get to your holidays and you're feeling lonely, man, I, like no one cares. I sometimes even wonder if God cares. Listen, his name is Emmanuel. That means he wrapped himself in flesh. God 
in the flesh set foot on this earth. Is that amazing? You're not alone. He cares for you. Emmanuel. Philippians chapter two, the apostle Paul says, has the, have the same mind in you that, that Christ had, had the mind of Christ, which is what? He gave up his rights and served us, Emmanuel. And so that touches all your broken relationships because when you've had an injustice against you, you can be humble enough to say, you know what? I need to have the mind of Christ who could have given me what I deserved, which was wrath, but instead he, he took on flesh. Jesus is more than a prophet. He's more than a teacher. He, he's the God-man. That's the person of Christ. And what's his work? Well, he, he, lived, he was perfect. He, he lived a perfect life. He, he, every, every moment, every second of the life of Christ, he lived in perfect relationship, which means he never let a debt of injustice. Nowhere in any of his relationships was the vacuum of the debt of injustice against his father or against humanity. Nobody owed Jesus anything. He was perfect. And he, he di- but he died a substitutionary death. He, he, he was obedient to the will of the Father. He died the perfect death where the wrath of God for your sins and my sins was poured out on Christ so that the vacuum of injustice that we have against our creator could be filled. In other words, our sin has been justly paid for, not by you or me, but by our substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. The church word for this, the Bible word for this found in 1 John is the word propitiation, where your sin has been paid for, but it wasn't paid for by you and by me, it was paid for by God's son, Jesus Christ. And the work of Christ continues that they laid him in a grave and he rose again, authenticating his claims and vanquishing the enemies of our sin, including death. So we can apply that message to our hearts. We can think the way Christ thought when there's an injustice against us. We can humble ourselves and we can be made right with God, the word peace. We can be reconciled. And how do we do that? We, when we're reconciled with our creator, when we repent of our sin and we believe in God's gift of salvation, we believe that Jesus is who he said he was. We believe Jesus died on the cross to pay a penalty that your sin and my sin deserve. You believe that Jesus rose again by the power of God and this incredible gift of God is not earned by works, but in injustice has been covered by God. Why? Because it pleased God to cover the injustice. I want you to think about that. Your injustice against your creator has been covered. Why? Because it pleased God to do so. And so when we repent of our sin and we believe in the person and work of Christ, I've got really good news for you. You're no longer an enemy of God. You've been declared righteous. You've been declared perfect because of the works of Jesus. And since you are no longer an enemy of God, the scriptures now declare you are now friends with God because God loved us even when we were still sinners. Isn't that great news? So what we deserve is the wrath of God, but God in his mercy and his grace has granted forgiveness. He's filled the gap of injustice. Why? Because it pleased him to do so. When we turn from our sin, we acknowledge his saving, his savior, who he sent to be our savior, his son, Jesus Christ. And in that, we move from enemies to friends. 
And it's not on, based on anything that we did. It's because it pleased God. And it pleased his son to submit to the will of his father to reconcile us. So that we're no longer enemies. This is the great conflict. And the great conflict has been reduced to peace because it pleased God. Colossians 1, the Apostle Paul says it this way in Colossians 1, 19, for in him, meaning in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Romans 5.1. You've been justified. I bet you didn't know it meant all that, did it? You've been justified, which means we are now at peace with God. The great war, the great conflict is over, and it's, we're, we're, we're at peace. We're, we're free to be in relationship with our creator by grace through faith. Now, why in the world does this matter? I mean, if we're talking about, man, how we gather around the, the dinner table in a few weeks and have a harvest of peace, why in the world does that matter? Well, it matters because once our relationship with our creator is restored and we see how he restored it by his grace alone, not because we deserved it, because he chose to, now that touches every single relationship that we have. Because now we have the mind of Christ. So that when there's an injustice against us, we can have the mind of Christ. When we create an injustice because we sin against someone else and, and we're confronted on that sin, we can have the mind of Christ. We can humbly receive instruction and ask for forgiveness. In fact, the apostle Peter, he, he asked a very important question in Matthew chapter 18 Jesus did some teaching on how we reconcile when we've been sinned against in Matthew 18, the process for healing our broken relationships. And so Peter came after Jesus taught on this. He thought he'd brag a little bit. And so he comes to Jesus in Matthew 18, 21. <clears throat> Peter came up to Jesus and said, Lord, how often will I forgive my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. And he says, as many as seven times. Now, you have to understand the culture. Most of the rabbis during this time of Jesus were teaching that if someone sinned against you, you needed to forgive them up to three times. And so Peter here is doing a math equation. And he's thinking, man, if the rabbi, all the local rabbis are teaching I should forgive somebody three times, I'll double it and add one. And Jesus, in front of all the other disciples, will think I'm awesome. All right? And so he's like, so Jesus, I'm willing to go to seven times forgiveness. And then Jesus said to him, I did not say to you seven times, but what, church? You know this. A lot of you know this, right? Seventy times seven. And by the way, the, the idea there is not that that's a math equation. Some of you are like, 490, I got it. You know? 
That's 491, you're out. Okay, so uh, no, the idea is that as a believer, when you understand how much you've been forgiven, how dare us withhold forgiveness when someone's restoring a relationship? And so then Jesus goes on to tell this fascinating story in Matthew chapter 18. I'm not going to read it, but I, I just want to tell it to you. And you all, many of you know it, right? So, so he tells the story. He says, it's like a story of a king who decides to settle accounts of all the people that owe him money. And so he, he gets the first person who owes him essentially, and, and these numbers are pretty close, right? Essentially owes the king a million dollars. And he brings this man before the king, and the king says, listen, it's time for me to settle accounts. You owe me a million bucks. And of course, this guy doesn't have it. And so the king says, the king says I'll tell you what, I want you to sell him and sell his family and sell his, all his possessions, and, and, I, and that will be enough to settle the account. And the man begins to plead. He says, God, you know, king, please forgive me. Give me an opportunity. I can repay the debt. He'll never repay the debt. But he says, if you just give me a chance, I'll repay the debt. Just don't sell my family. Don't sell everything I own. And the king, in his mercy, forgives the debt completely. He says, I'll tell you what, don't worry about it. And he forgives the debt of a million dollars. And so the servant to the king, he goes out, and he finds another servant to the king. And this other servant to the king, this servant owes him a dollar. He owes him a dollar. And he says to the fellow servant, hey, you owe me a dollar. I want to settle accounts. I want you to pay me my dollar today. And the servant says, I, I can't do it, but I'm good for it. I'll pay you back. I'll pay you the dollar back. And the servant who had just been forgiven a million says, no. And he takes the servant. He throws him into prison. And he says, you're going to stay there. You pay me my dollar back. And the other servants, they see this happening. Man, they say, that's not right. They go back to the king. And they say, listen, this is what happened. And the king then takes this servant who, who he'd just forgiven a million dollars. And he does what he initially said he was going to do. And I, as I was reading this over again this morning, I, I don't have it in, in, in your notes or on the slide. But Matthew 18, 36, as Jesus finishes this story. Actually, it's verse 35, 1835. He finishes the story by saying, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Whew. I, mean, I, think, I think the application's unmistakable, right? I mean, do I, do I need to apply this? The point is, there's this great conflict. We're in rebellion against our Creator, and our Creator, because of His grace and His mercy, because it pleased Him to do so, He covered our debt through the blood and the sacrifice of His own Son. And so the amount of forgiveness that God has given us has left us as believers in a position to not withhold one iota of forgiveness to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that can and should include all of those closest to us, including parents and siblings and spouses and children and coworkers and bosses and church members and church leaders. C.S. Lewis said it this way, 
To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And so as a Christian, if you're here this morning, you're a Christian, it means that peace has been freely granted to you. So peace can be freely granted. Peace has been freely given to you. That means peace can be freely granted. You know, if you're like me, and I can be like the servant who demanded the dollar, man, I'm fantastic at seeing the injustices created against me. I got a clear eye for that one. But I struggle to see the injustice that I bring against others. And so the message of the gospel is, man, salvation is is seeing that my incredible debt that I owe to God has been freely forgiven in Christ, and therefore the overflow of the gospel is I become an incredibly humble person towards others. And it helps me consider that maybe, just maybe, I'm approaching my earthly relationships with a blind spot. Maybe I'm part of the problem. Maybe, maybe in regards to earthly relationships, it, it, it helps me to remember the approach that Jesus took, that he humbled himself to the point of death. And so it helps me to approach all my relationships with humility, and I'm ready to offer free and full forgiveness. Why? Because I've been forgiven much. And now I'm going to run you through the rest of the letter of Romans. Ready? Here we go. Paul paints this very theological picture. It's probably the most theological letter of the New Testament that gives us the theological terms of the gospel of Jesus. But he concludes with incredible practical application. So here's the thumbnail sketch. So once we understand the gospel, we understand we're reconciled, we understand the debt that we owe that's been paid. Chapter 12, Paul says, now, guess what? You're free to be a living sacrifice. You're free to humbly serve others. You're you're free to love others. You're you're free to, to bless those who persecute you. You're free to live at peace with others. Let me ask you something. We live in a culture where we're facing racial divisions. And it's like, it's like I feel like we, we watch the news, we watch the racial divisions unfold in front of us, and it's like we don't know what to do. And one of the things I've been preaching when I've, talked, when I've touched on in some sermons on racial divisions, I said, man, the hope of, the, of racial healing is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. When red and yellow and black and white go, man, I understand the gospel and I have been deeply and freely forgiven. How could I not offer forgiveness to my brothers and sisters in Christ? The church should be on the forefront of leading racial healing because we've been so free forgiven, yes? And so, man, we, we can forgive those 
We don't have to repay evil for evil, and we can live at peace with others, and we can bless those who have persecuted us. Chapter 12 of Romans. Chapter 13 says you're free to leave vengeance to God. You don't have to take vengeance yourself. God will take care of injustices in eternity future. Chapters 14 and 15, man, you're you're free to not pass judgment on others in regards to non-essential doctrines, right? We get all churches, man. We get all sideways on non-essential doctrines. Paul says, relax, okay? Aaron Rodgers, relax, okay? Chapter 15, you're free to bear with those who drive you nuts. Why? Because you've been forgiven a million bucks. The greatest injustice, the greatest conflict has already been taken care of. It's your conflict with your Creator, and you've been forgiven through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love Christmas songs. I've, I've actually used this illustration before, so some of you will remember it, but I love Christmas songs. I, uh, there's some, in some of them, there's some depth. I'm not talking about Grandma got run over by a reindeer, okay? But um, in 1864, uh, one of America's great poets, a guy by the name of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, had, had just been through a very difficult stretch in his life. A couple years earlier, his, his wonderful wife, Fanny, had tragically died after a freak accident where her dress caught on fire and she died from the burned wounds. Longfellow now lived in a country that was ravaged by civil war. Antium and Vicksburg and, and Gettysburg, they had pitted In our great country, they had pitted, if you can even imagine, brother against brother and father against son at war. And this this war was leaving a scar across our country from Mississippi to Maine, and and, and many, many soldiers didn't come home for Christmas, and some never returned home. And the poet Longfellow, he sat in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and he He was pondering the world in which he lived, and on this particular day, nearing Christmas, he he could hear the church bells at the local church ringing out Christmas songs, but here Longfellow, the widower, was nursing his son Charles back to health. His son had been injured by a Confederate bullet in the Battle of New Hope Church. And he hears these church bells ringing out these Christmas songs of Christmas hope. And Longfellow began to struggle with the message of the angels of Luke chapter 2 verse 14 of peace on earth and goodwill to men. And so Longfellow, ever the poet but also a Christian, he picked up his pen and he wrote these words. He wrote, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play, and mild and sweet, their songs repeat, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And now his poem, he begins to wrestle with this truth as he writes the, the chorus that probably you, many of you know in the, in the song, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, he writes, and the bells, they're ringing 
peace on earth, like a choir singing, peace on earth. And in my heart, I hear them, peace on earth, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And then in his poem, he gets really honest. He says, but in despair, I bow my head. There's no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and it mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Yet I hear the bells, they're ringing, peace on earth, like a choir singing, peace on earth. And then he changes the chorus a little bit. He says, does anybody hear them? Peace on earth. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in his despair, like many of the Psalms do, and the psalmist, when they write, he writes, he begins to preach the gospel to himself. He says, then rang the bells more loud and deep. What did these songs sing? God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail and right prevail with peace on earth and goodwill to men. It's the hope of the gospel, church. The hope of the gospel. God is not dead. Jesus has conquered death. He's reconciled us to our creator through grace and mercy and forgiveness and peace. And so here's my prayer for you, church. My prayer is that as this series continues, that you will know how the forgiveness of God in Christ, you will meditate on this truth. You will worship Christ and freely receive the peace of God given to you in Christ. And because you have freely received, you can freely and generously and abundantly give peace on earth and forgiveness as it has been granted to you prayer for us is that we would be a people whose holiday season would truly know a harvest of peace. May you leave here today and meditate on the gospel that you have been freely granted peace with God through Jesus Christ's Son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the hope that has been granted to us. We thank you for peace on earth goodwill to men. And you sent us your greatest gift, your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that would overflow to every relationship we have. That the vacuum of injustice would be filled with the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we as believers would be generous people, generous with forgiveness people that bring peace and reconciliation to others, that there would be a harvest of peace. And it's in Jesus' name I pray.